Good afternoon, everyone. Um, this is Zach Lucas McCarthy Denning. Uh, just starting this webinar a little bit earlier to uh, go through some of the uh, ordinary housekeeping that we do on these um, uh, virtual roundtables, as well as the webinar series for the uh, single family office and the governance and succession program. For today, this is the, uh, the sort of final session in the governance and succession series that commenced in late August. Uh, we've been through a whole series of talks, um, regional as well as obviously uh, in the beginning, setting the scene for all of the, uh, the, the inner workings of business families and, and how they progress their wealth across generations. Uh, the idea behind today's session is we bring it all together, but look uh, particularly at the single family office and how we can apply what we've learned over the entire program to the single family office. Today, I'm happy to be joined by a much larger panel than usual, and uh, including obviously Spencer, Spencer Sue from the uh, Monetary Authority of Singapore will once again um, be joining us. Uh, Tan Wun Ham from uh, a partner with uh, Shumanik and Bok will also uh, be in attendance. And of course, Jennifer Chi from the previous um, um, uh, webinar that we have, uh, partner PK1 and I will also join. This time we have uh, Kaini Liu, uh, Executive Director, BDO Tax Advisory, will also um, be, be participating in today's talks. In terms of the agenda, uh, we'll run through an update of the VCC um, legislation, looking particularly at the, um, you know, how it's been going in terms of its initial run into the marketplace and um, looking at how it's going to be developed in the future. And Spencer will, will obviously help to, to give us a general update on how that's going to pan out going forward. We then look at the, the beginnings of the single family office um, technical talk and here I'll introduce what we mean by uh, the family office client so that we can be clear on which type of family office we're dealing with. Then we'll look at the corporate family office options that we have in Singapore. And here, we'll look at the, uh, the private limited company and we'll compare that against the VCC where appropriate when we're going through the analysis. Um, we'll look at uh, cross-generational use of the uh, single family office uh, look at effective stewardship, the requirements for governance frameworks to, to help families to cross-generate, cross-generational uh, uh, transfers of these, these forms of entities. And we'll look at the effective succession. And here we'll look at two types, the uh, normal share succession to or corporate succession to a single family office, as well as we'll look at uh, a trust succession. Then we'll look at the trust family office and they're looking at effective stewardship of uh, a trust structure that includes a family office. And we'll, we'll also discuss, if we have enough time, um, uh, looking at multi-branch ownership of, of uh, a single family office, as well as a VCC fund. And we'll, we'll get into that when we, when we run down. And then finally, we'll, we'll close off the entire session with a discussion on the tax aspects of transitioning a family office cross-generationally. And Kylie's uh, kindly agreed to, um, to help us to run through that. So that's the, that's the program. It's actually a, a fairly, um, fairly heavy program today. So we'll try and go at a, a sort of more than medium pace to try and get, get through this. So I hope it's not too quick. Um, but just kicking off with um, uh, the Variable Capital Company, VCC, and the general update. And here I'd invite Spencer to just um, run through some of his initial thoughts on the VCC and its uptake to date. Thanks very much, uh, Zach, for, for the introduction and I think also initiating this round of webinars. I think it's been very uh, helpful in terms of uh, better understanding the various nuances in different markets 
and also developments that uh, Singapore should take note of. Uh, and I think uh, the, this all comes back to the strong growth that we have seen in the uh, single family office uh, space in Singapore. I think the number of uh, um, the number of family offices that we have seen being established in Singapore has grown by about five times uh, between 2017 and 2019. And uh, one, one thing that we keep doing is that we, we continuously look at the ecosystem to look at areas that you know, could be enhanced and tweaked to make uh, Singapore more attractive for uh, international uh, family offices. And I think in this regard, one of the, uh, the new latest initiatives would be that of the uh, variable uh, capital company. I do need to add a caveat here though, uh, because uh, at this point in time, uh, when we talk about single family offices, they are not able to manage um, a VCC at this point in time. Uh, although uh, this, this is area is being very actively explored to see how that can be made a reality uh, uh, in, in the near future. But uh, even without that, I think we have seen very strong growth in the VCC space uh, in Singapore so far. The legislation was launched at the start of the year. And at this point in time, uh, we are looking at more than 120 VCCs that have been registered. Uh, and that uh, actually has far exceeded um, uh, our own expectations. And we believe that you know, as a greater uh, recognition and familiarity with the tool, with the uh, investment holding vehicle comes, I think it will attract even more uh, funds that we will look to uh, establish either in Singapore or to be uh, re-domiciled to Singapore. And I think this is because of uh, the many attractive features that the VCC presents uh, in terms of the cost efficiency in allowing multiple sub-funds to be housed within a single umbrella fund structure. Uh, and also, I think uh, on, on that end, there's also flexibility in terms of what kind of funds uh, the VCC can uh, encapsulate, uh, ranging from a traditional as well as non-traditional, uh, as well as open-ended and closed-ended funds. Hence, it lends for a very multi-varied multi use uh, of the fund uh, entity structure. Uh, and also at the same time, uh, there is also a very useful uh, redomiciliation clause, which makes it uh, very easy for uh, funds which have been domiciled in other locations uh, to be uh, redomiciled uh, into Singapore. And of course, at the same time, uh, the MAS, as part of our efforts to uh, promote the use of the VCC uh, as a choice vehicle for uh, domiciling uh, uh, funds, uh, there are um, uh, incentives that have been uh, made available uh, for the VCC vehicle. I think on the first hand, uh, you know, when it comes to the cost, uh, legal advisory, as well as some of the other related uh, administrative costs that uh, come with the establishment of uh, a VCC, uh, the MAS has a grant in place, a VCC grant scheme in place to subsidize up to 70% of qualifying costs. Uh, and at the same time, uh, the 13X and R uh, tax exemption uh, uh, incentive, which has uh, uh, been very attractive to funds so far is also uh, available to the VCC. So I think um, on, on many ends and fronts, the VCC is a very attractive uh, vehicle uh, at this point in time. Uh, and also I think um, while uh, I, I keep talking about fund uh, as, an, an, as a fund entity to begin with, um, you will look at this more from an asset management perspective. But even from the wealth management perspective, there has been an increasing uh, number of VCCs that have been established by wealth managers to help uh, their clients uh, manage their assets. 
Uh, and in this case, uh, I think where it's really interesting is that uh, the, the very nature of the VCC itself, the flexibility actually uh, lends well to, uh, for example, uh, sophisticated families with uh, multiple branches that are looking to um, you know, uh, enjoy the efficiencies of uh, managing the fund as a single entity, but yet looking to um, you know, um, uh, protect their own, uh, have better risk management measures in place uh, to, to, to isolate the risk of individual portfolios from each other. Uh, they're able to uh, leverage the, the umbrella fund structure to do so. And hence, in a way, it, it, it is able to meet um, the varied needs of families uh, as well as the different fa uh, members and branches uh, within this family. So I think uh, as, as we look forward to this, uh, uh, I am sure that, you know, given the, the innovation within the industry, we will see um, many new users uh, of the VCC, uh, be it in, uh, uh, for wealth management purposes or for, for, for other uh, asset management purposes. Uh, and, and this is something that uh, we really have to watch uh, uh, in time to come. And I think you know, our, our, uh, my, our panel of uh, uh, colleagues today will be able to share with you more about the technicalities uh, when it comes to uh, specific aspects of the VCCs in the later part of the discussion. Thank you. Okay, thanks very much, Vincent. Very grateful for that. We'll get on to look at, uh, in terms of today's talk, the, the family office client, so that we can start to, to sort of ground which particular segment we're looking at uh, for the analysis purposes. So family office defined, there's, there's really only sort of, there's, there's very many ways in which we can describe a family office, but there are basically three that tend to come up quite often. The multifamily office, investment office, and then the single family office. Uh, from a multifamily office uh, perspective, this is really um, external asset manager professionals who are managing third party family money. They're, they're deploying their skills. It's not designed as a family um, uh, office as such. It's, it's really a commercial undertaking with professionals involved that are effectively you know, deploying their skills to help families as clients. From an investment office standpoint, that really is looking at a, uh, an entrepreneur, an individual, not family, not collective wealth, but just an individual managing their own wealth in a more sophisticated way than would otherwise be the case. But for our purposes, we would look at the single family office as collective wealth multiple branches of a family, all pooling in and looking at how to establish a more robust and modernized approach to their management of their uh, private assets or private liquidity assets. So that's, that's really the basis of what we're talking about today is a single family office and not a multifamily office or an investment office. The key objectives of a single family office, obviously consolidated asset management is, is going to be one of them. Enhanced investment returns, that's the whole sort of point of this this structure, and then cost and efficiency gains. That's why we all look at the tax and the, the licensing exemption so carefully because it adds into the costs of all, all of this. But also uh, families look at the multi-generational effect of the family office itself in the same way as they look at the family business. And here there's two aspects that we need to consider. Effective stewardship uh, of the family office and effective succession to the family office. And these two aspects are going to be the, the mainstay of the discussion today when surrounding the, the family office. In terms of the corporate family office, and I use that term quite um, sort of loosely, the, the principal options or structural options that we will, we will look at today will be this. So we have a typical scenario where we have multiple shareholders, all family members, 
um, into a holding company. Uh, and this would be your typical 13x13R 13 13, uh, scenario. And this, this, you obviously can have configuration differences in this, but this is broadly what we've been looking at as a traditional family office or single family office in Singapore to date. Now, insofar as the analysis for today is concerned, we will also look at the VCC as a, um, as a, a sort of family fund. And here, obviously, the VCC does have a share class, albeit that they are uh, potentially different uh, class uh, members. Uh, we do have a difference with the single family office in that we have a professional licensed fund manager managing the VCC. And then we've got this cellular effect where we have the the ring fencing of liability and gains within each of the, uh, the, the cells of the uh, uh, variable capital company. And each of them are obviously seriatum in that way. So that's the, the two corporate uh, sort of uh, structures or platforms that we will mention as we go through, just to do a compare and contrast where it's relevant, um, just to see the, uh, the likelihood of a use of a VCC in the context of a, uh, a sort of family fund, family office. So looking at the effective stewardship, and this is all about, you know, obviously the governance that will be applied to the current owners of the family office, and then also future members that will take over ownership of the family office. The principal documents that we will consider when we're looking at the governance framework will be the corporate constitution of the relevant company, the shareholders agreements that may be entered into, and then we'll look at the family charter, although it's an unusual application in the um, sort of family office space, we'll still consider it just to see. So these are the principal documents that will be considered in the context of looking at a governance framework when it comes to a single family office. And the same will apply if we are discussing the BCC as well. So when we talk about governance framework as it applies to a, a sort of single family office, it's back to that same principle of families being encouraged to consider four different aspects. Now, this will also apply if you were, you were dealing with a VCC and there was a family um, sort of context to this and not just a, an investment um, sort of opportunity. And really these four aspects, uh, families are encouraged to consider them, advisors, wealth managers, uh, wealth planners are encouraged to consider each of the four. Families are obviously different and no two families can really be the same, but the trending is that if you don't consider these, uh, then likely it is the structure will be fairly, um, it will have some level of weakness built in. So the discussion that follows, will go through each of these in turn, and we'll, we'll discuss broadly what's best practice and, and how does it work when we go through this effective compass of issues that families should habitually consider when they're looking at a single family office. So, Looking at from a control aspect as the first in the, uh, in the discussion, the main influence here is participatory control. It's a family, so they'll look at it from the context of not exclusive but participatory control. That's the context in which these, uh, the interface between the family will be considered. Questions I'll, I'll discuss with both Jennifer as well as Munham um, will be how we effectively look at branch nominees. So if we have three branches of the family collectivizing into a single family office, how, what's the default position at corporate law and what do we need to do in order to have branch sort of nominee director representation? 
will look at investment policy formulation and execution and really where is the correct locus of control for this if we are going to adopt a participatory approach across the family? Is it something for the shareholders to do in terms of approval or is it really just a management issue and they, they should just uh, sort of sit back and not be involved? From an executive team standpoint, the recruitment of the, let's say, CIO, is that, should that be something that the shareholders should be involved in or is that purely a management issue or something for the directors? And then looking at removal of team members, again, should just be escalated up to the, the shareholders or not, and what is the default position at corporate law? So I think I'll ask Jennifer to start um, sort of helping us with, in the context of a family who are coming together doing one of these, in the same way as a family coming together with any sort of undertaking, if they want to have a branch nominee director, is, what will they need to do in order to achieve that with respect to the relevant corporate documentation? So looking at the constitution or the shareholders agreement, where's the best place for them to do that? In terms of the right to appoint uh, a nominee director and to from time to time replace that person with another appointee, that would usually appear in the shareholders agreement and there wouldn't be any issue with also mirroring that those provisions in the constitution. Uh, in relation to the terms of appointment of the branch nominee director, these would usually be found in a deed of appointment that would also have the standard uh, Companies Act type of um, indemnities and rights of a director to be paid a fee. Um, so that would be a document that sets out what his duties are, how he's going to be paid, and what his indemnity rights are, uh, insofar as these are proscribed under the Companies Act. They wouldn't go further than that. And right. so there would be a total of maybe three sets of documents. Right, right. And Wunhan, from your experience, when we come to the investment policy formulation, uh, where do the families generally put the locus of control for that? Is it something that the shareholders would get involved with typically, or is it something that it would just be the management team at the bottom end doing the fund management? Uh, thanks, Zach. Good afternoon, everyone. So it really depends on the family, and the maturity and the sophistication of the family and how big the family is and how many generations. But you could fall into a couple of buckets. So one bucket is that the patriarchs and the matriarchs don't really care, don't really want to know, but they will delegate it to the professionals or the second, third generation who are trained and equipped. So they would delegate entirely to the management company. So the single family office or professional fund management company will be in the terms of engagement, investment management agreement. Um, for those who want to retain some control or a greater extent of control, you could also overlay that on right at the top of a shareholders agreement, just like a normal joint venture. So the shareholders agreement will say certain appointments, certain investment, certain uh, moves need the approval of the majority, super majority, or the patriarch may have a veto, right? So you could do it at the shareholders agreement and at the management company level or both. Right, right. Because I suppose the, the removal of um, you know, key executives would be something I would have thought that may be of concern to some of the shareholders if some of them are involved and some of them are not involved in the family office. So that would be something that they might wish to, to consider as a collective. Is, is that probably right? Um, 
for the more sophisticated uh, family office, they actually may have a family charter or a committee, a board committee or supervisory or advisory committee. Mm. So that committee will actually dictate uh, who the C-suites are, when they are appointed and when they are removed. If you don't have that charter or that kind of committee, then it should be at the shareholders' uh, level. So you should have a shareholders' agreement providing these are the key terms or reserve matters. Right, right. Okay, okay. Now, so far as the control element on the VCC is concerned, just a quick question on the sort of compulsory director and third-party fund management. And really the issue that I'd want to raise is um, when, we, when we look at the legislation, um, it would appear that these would need to be unconnected parties, so not connected to the family or to the, to the VCC. But in practice, do we find that um, we can have a family effectively uh, go through the, the, the sort of uh, licensing route themselves and for all of this to be housed within a, a sort of connected, closely held structure? Is that, is that possible in practice? Uh, yes, it's possible. So uh, let me take a while just to briefly explain, but take a step back on uh, this key requirement on this particular point first. Looking at this chart, I think what you meant about the compulsory director is that the VCC Act says that the VCC can only be used as a fund and the VCC fund must appoint an approved manager. So being a manager in Singapore that has a CMS license for fund management, a registered fund management company, or a licensed bank in Singapore that has been exempted from fund management with proper notification to the MS. So only these three kinds of managers can be a manager of a VCC fund. The other requirement is that the VCC fund must have at least one director, uh, sorry, must have uh, at least one director who is a director or a licensed representative of the fund management company. So this is a compulsory director requirement. Right. So a single family office can do use the VCC as a family fund in a number of ways. One, it can choose to remain as a single family office, sponsor and invest into a single family fund, which is a VCC. So they put their money into a VCC fund and no one else has put their money into this fund. And then appoint a CMS license manager or RFMC that they have vetted, done due diligence that they're happy with, uh, agreed on commercial terms and get them to manage this for them. So typically this kind of CMS license manager would be a multi-family office, like exactly what you have mentioned. Right. So they will manage this VCC fund for this family, maybe another VCC fund for another family and other managed accounts or funds. Right. Um, so in this case, typically the single family office will not have control over the board or the shareholders or the shares and actions of the fund management company because it's a separate company. Yes. It's regulated by MAS. Yes. It, you, it could happen that one of the uh, professional being a member of the family is also a, a, a partner or an employee of the fund management company, then that, that could work. We have other cases, which is quite common in Asia, where the single family office started out as a single family office, but they have ambition and they want to become a multi-family office. So what they then do is they set up a CMS licensed fund management company, apply to the MS, get themselves to wholly own the fund management company, staff it with their own people or external advisors that they, they brought in as employees. So they become a multi-family office. They sponsor and invest in a VCC fund for themselves, managed yeah. by a fund management company controlled by them. Yeah. Then they can manage another fund for another family. So at least two models can work in Singapore. Yes, yes. But that's fairly, that's fairly 
um, sort of exceptional at the moment. Is that correct? Um, we have done about 10 VCC funds launch completed, um, uh, another 10 on hand. So I won't say that's the exception, about almost about half of our VCC fund projects are family office, single family or multifamily. So in fact, I see an increasing trend that the larger families want to use VCC fund as opposed to something from say the Caribbean. Right, and they, they're happy to go through the, the licensing process on the fund manager side. Uh, yes and no. There are single family offices that are very big, but they want to remain private. So they partner up with a CMS license holder. But right. there are some CMS license, sorry, some family offices that have ambition. So they already manage their own family's money. And then their uh, close family friends also have a large chunk of money. And they say, can you help me manage? I don't want to set up a CMS entity. Can you do it? And then we'll piggyback. So nice. that, that coming together is, is quite uh, a trend today. Right. And typical size is uh, at least 100, 150 million US. Right, okay, all right. From a participation standpoint, this is really about restricted ownership and back to the usual family approach of uh, family only. So only family members can be part of a, a single family office. And here this takes us into the statutory, you know, well, the area of preemption rights and preemption you know, can come up in many different circumstances from a disposal of the shares to a gift of the shares, a rights issue, or even a transmission on succession or on death. And from, from Jennifer, from your perspective, from a Singapore corporate law standpoint, are there statutory preemption rights that apply to a Singapore company quite aside from its uh, M&As or its constitution? The statutory preemption rights are very limited. All it says is that there must be some restriction in connection with the transfer of shares. So what, it, what restriction it is, is really up to the parties to prescribe in the constitutional documents and or in the shareholders' agreements. So if you use a standard form M&A, which is commonly found in Singapore, the standard form which is commonly used in Singapore, mm -hmm. they will have preemption restrictions um, right of first refusal restrictions in connection with transfers only, not for disposals, um, which are gifts, not mm. for transmission under a will or under letters of administration if there is no will, mm. and certainly not for new issues of shares, such as including or including rights issues of shares. Right. So for three different scenarios out of a total of four, there are generally no preemption rights under the so-called standard form of M&A, which is most commonly used uh, in Singapore. Right. If you want to have that, then it's, uh, you will have to customize the M&A, but the customization um, in connection with share issues will be very straightforward. The customization in connection with gifts should also be quite straightforward if you just do a, a provision that blocks it completely save for lineal descendants, uh, spouses and uh, children, adopted children and stepchildren. But for transmission on succession, that is going to be a tricky issue because of the fact that succession is not only governed by Singapore law, but there are also uh, foreign laws that will come into play and potentially supersede 
what you provide in the constitutional documents. Right, right. Okay, okay. And we'll, we'll get to, to the, the transmission a bit more detail later on. But the, the basic thing is you're going to need to do some work. If you're uh, effectively establishing a Singapore single family office, you're going to need to do some work on your, um, your, your governance documents in order to achieve a family only restriction across the board. It won't just it won't come to you as a, as a default under the general law. Yes. Okay. In terms of involvement, um, typically in any sort of family scenario, look at uh, well-advised families will look at family employment policies, CIO qualifying criteria, and family member removal protocols. I assume that these are the sorts of um, documents or the sorts of um, provisions that will find their way into a shareholders agreement. Is that is that right, Jennifer? Um, it could be in the shareholders agreement. It could be in a side document that's referred to in the shareholders agreement. So actually it would be a neater, neater way to put all of these policies as um, appendices or schedules, more likely appendices to the shareholders agreement. It's a lot right. neater. Right. Okay. Now, from the VCC standpoint, looking at trying to do restricted ownership, um, looking at the class share preemption, uh, so family only, so family branch only restriction, going through the same criteria of disposal, gift, rights issue, and transmission on death. Wunham, in the general, because we've seen that they've, uh, ACRA, I think, has produced a, a sort of general MA or constitutional document for VCC. Is any of this catered for both in the legislation or in, in that um, model form document that's been produced? Or, or is this something that people will have to tailor make if they're concerned about a, um, a branch logic where only uh, that members of that branch can be a class holder? Sure. So um, the VCC Act, as Spencer said, only came into um, force 15 January this year. Mm -hmm. It's very new with a model constitution. That model constitution looks similar to the uh, Companies Act Model A constitution. Mm. Of course, uh, tweak for purposes of VCC. Uh, under the VCC Act, there is no preemption rights for VCC. And under model constitution, if I remember correctly, uh, there's no preemption rights as well. The reason is because the VCC is used as a fund. So typically mm. for funds, there is no preemption right. Mm. The restriction on transfer, the restriction on transfer, or prohibition of transfer of units or shares in a fund, including a VCC fund, would typically be found in the PPM, Private Placement Memorandum. So assuming the VCC is used for a normal fund or multifamily office fund, it will actually say that you cannot transfer the shares period or you cannot transfer the shares in the first year. Or you cannot transfer without the consent of the board or the investment committee or both, something like that. Um, so for a single family office, all the more that we will have to put in the restriction to say no transfer because it's captive, right? The fund is only invested by the family. It's not meant to, uh, for the family members to then sell, charge or transfer the shares to outsiders. So it could be in the shareholders agreement restriction. It could be in the family charter restriction, but definitely in the PPM, we as lawyers will actually uh, take instructions from the family office and put a prohibition of transfer. Right. Right. Okay. And in terms of the involvement, we have this curious provision of the directors of the VCC having to be fit and proper. And uh, just wondering, what's the statutory criteria for fit and proper in this context? 
Right. So um, the VCC Act says that the directors of the VCC fund must be fit and proper. So fit and proper is actually defined in section uh, section five one of the VCC Act. So in short, I'm not going to read it out. You, you can probably get it on the MS website. But in short, it's uh, someone who um, has not been disbarred from being a director, has not been removed uh, by MAS or uh, APRA as a director for VCCs or other companies, and they have not committed professional misconduct, serious negligence, or breach uh, fiduciary duty, or breach any AML CFT requirements. So basically, someone uh, who is not um, a crook, someone who has not uh, been in breach of any kind of uh, dishonest uh, you know, actions or involvement. Mm. So uh, whether it's the same as the CMS license fit and proper criteria, uh, the question was asked previously, it isn't, but uh, I think that is a good gauge right, to see whether the person is uh, proper in good standing for consideration. Right. Uh, it's actually prescribed. Yeah. And what's, does it have a sort of financial um, qualification? They have to have had a number of years investment experience. Is there anything like that attached to it? No, there isn't. No, there isn't. Right, okay. In terms from benefit, looking at the, the family office, obviously families create these things as a legacy, not as a sort of investment opportunities. So they're looking cross-generationally. So we look carefully at distribution reinvestment policy and where the decision about that policy will be made, whether it's a shareholder level director or at the, the sort of management team level. Um, and then we'll look at the income distribution statutory criteria and share buyback statutory criteria in the context of an ordinary Singapore um, company. And I'd ask Jennifer, insofar as um, the, the sort of income distribution criteria, statutory redemption or or, or, or buyback. What is the criteria that's applied to a ordinary Singapore, so a non-VCC, but an ordinary Singapore company in arriving at the, um, the, the sort of correct requirements? Um, from what I understand, you need profits in order to um, redeem shares. Um, and these are profits which could be carried over from previous years or current year's profits. And uh, in relation to the share buyback, uh, I think I believe you also need profits as well, and you also need to pass the criteria of solvency. Right. And from your your experience, where do generally families place the distribution reinvestment policy decision making? Um, do they do they have it at the shareholder level, at the family level? Or do they place it down at the you know the sort of uh, management level? Where where is it usually housed in terms of that decision process? Um, usually it's at the investment and management level, but sometimes it could also be at the super level, which is at the shareholders level. So typically, if there is a fund document, sometimes even for single family funds, we do a PPM. Then in the PPM, you will specify whether uh, there's a distribution policy, how it works what's the target returns and things like that. You also specify whether you can reinvest, if so, up to how much per year. Mm -hmm. So in a multi-family office fund or single family office fund or VCC fund, typically we will actually uh, take instructions and provide this in the documentation clearly. Right. And insofar as on the VCC side, 
what's the real difference between an, an ordinary private limited and a, a VCC when it comes to income distribution and, and things like a buyback? What's the, what's the difference that actually occurs there? Um, okay, I'll, I'll take this question and, you know, uh, Spencer, Jennifer, feel free to jump in. So there are some fundamental differences between a VCC and a normal private limited company. And these key fundamental differences are actually the beauty of it, which makes VCC very attractive. So for the audience, if you're familiar with the Cayman SPC, Segregated Portfolio Company, our VCC is quite similar. Uh, you, uh, you are, for VCC, you can have variable capital and you can have different classes. So for example, uh, the construct, basic construct is that you have management shares, which are like ordinary shares with voting rights. Then you have participating shares like preference shares, uh, typically with economic rights, but no voting rights. So the investors, whether single family office or real fund investors actually take participating shares. So in, in that sense, when the investors put in money, they acquire participating shares in the sub funds, if it's an umbrella sub fund, and then as and when and permitted by the PPM or the IMA, the funds will actually be able to redeem or pay back uh, cash to the investors or the family. And there's no restriction of uh, that found in the Companies Act. In other words, there's no solvency test requirement. So, so long as you have cash and the PPM allows or the IMA allows and uh, the board of the VCC pass a resolution to allow uh, sending back the money, either by way of dividend distribution, a redemption, or a buyback, you can do it. It's permissible under the law. So that's the main difference and benefit compared to uh, a normal private limited company. So it's an easier process to draw down capital effectively. Um, you draw down the capital, draw from the investors, is the same as the company and, and LP and unit trust, no difference from drawing down. The sending back of the money is, is the, a lot easier, yeah. Right, so I think that from a family office, if it's a, in that context, then obviously the family have to be aware it's, it's, a, it's a more flexible approach. So if they're concerned about a generation that's likely to spend out the entire amount of investments, then they'll need to be concerned that it's not made terribly easy for them to do it. So I think that would be one of the, one of the comparisons between them. Um, Zach, I would, I, would, I would look at it differently. The VCC uh, allows you to repatriate the cash anytime. But yeah. if the family, the patriarch, doesn't want that to happen, then you don't allow, right? You, you yeah. wrap it with the PPM and says you cannot, exactly. or you, exactly. can, you can only distribute up to 10% per year or something like that. Yes. Yeah? Exactly, exactly, yeah. Okay. Now on just the, I call it abuse, it's prevention of abuse. So it's not promotion of abuse, it's prevention of abuse. So in terms of making uh, structures transparent and accountable, so this is all about enhanced information sharing to the shareholders, looking at enhanced shareholder oversight, uh, related party transaction, director, executive pay, independent audit. I think, Jennifer, from your perspective, looking at when you have families co-investing like this, um, what steps can we take to enhance the statutory provisions that provide this, um, this added level of protection to try and stop them from going forth effectively? Sorry, I couldn't hear the last bit of what you said, the last three words. Just looking at the, uh, the provisions that we would usually enhance uh, on things like um, related party transactions, director, executive pay, looking at independent audits. What's the statutory position? And then if we were uh, advising a family that were looking carefully at trying to prevent abuse 
or prevent misuse of, of uh, something like a, a Singapore company used in a family office context, what, what would, we, would we tend to include as part of the remedial sort of language? The statutory position is that the shareholders will receive um, copies of the audited accounts or the finalized accounts. Um, audited accounts if the company is required to audit its accounts and just the finalized accounts if it's a private exam company. Um, and that is the sum total of all the information they're entitled to. If they were to look at the accounts and they have questions about um, the numbers, because most of the time the numbers are consolidated and it's not quite clear how they were consolidated or you know, where they were consolidated from, the shareholders can ask, but they're not entitled to receive any answers. So while harsh, while that position is harsh, it is exactly the position that is set out under the Companies Act. So for enhanced information sharing, this will have to be a contractual obligation on the part of the company to the shareholder, either contained in the shareholders agreement or um, the family constitution, or in the uh, memorandum and articles of association of the company itself, which is now called the constitution. Most of the time, um, this information is set out in the shareholders agreement or from what I believe, the family constitution, because these are both private documents that don't have to be filed and therefore are not generally available on the internet to members of the public for a small fee. Uh, in terms of the VCC, the only real sort of question I'd ask here is how has it translated the, the minority shareholder protections that we have at law? Um, I don't know, I know it's, a, it's a, obviously a very, very new act, but um, in your experience, have, have, they, have there been much consideration of how the minority protections will be translated to a VCC context? So the VCC Act does adopt the relevant provisions of the Companies Act on minority uh, oppression and, and the kind of minority right protection kind of provision. So it's on, on par with the Companies Act. Now, but we must remember uh, the VCC is a fund and, and we, we said that you know, right at the beginning and Spencer said that right at the beginning. So whilst the VCC is a fund, uh, mm. You go by the funds rule as well, right? So there's minority protection, but contractually, um, when you structure as a fund and the documentation, the subscription is uh, agreement is a legal document and mm. it will refer to the terms and incorporate the terms of the fund PPM. So the fund PPM will specify clearly that, uh, especially if it's multifamily office or uh, through PEVC hedge fund kind of structure using a VCC, that um, you go by the terms and conditions of the PPM and the subscription agreement. Meaning, if it's clearly spelled out that, uh, for example, you uh, have 75% of votes to extend the fund life for another two years, or you can expand the strategy or the investment sector or geography of the fund. If you, if you go by 75% or two thirds or 50% plus one vote, mm -hmm. then you have, you have already agreed to it. So I think the law will respect that so long as there's no uh, real oppression of minority, but right. you have come in with eyes open, it's arm's length, and you have agreed to this bargain, the terms are clear, 
you have read it or teams have read it, then you must uh, abide by the terms and conditions uh, of whatever is the majority that, that uh, rules uh, that have been put in place. Okay, all right. Thank you. Just finally looking at the, the last sort of constitutional document, the family charter, um, is this particularly popular with single family offices in the traditional 13X, 13R context? Have, you, have we seen family charters being used very often in this context? Um, again, depends on the family. If the patriarch is uh, still strong, healthy and young, uh, he calls a shot. He's, he's king or he thinks he's God. So there's no need for family charter. So when it's the second gen of working with one family, it's a, they're passing on to the second gen or third gen, then yes, because the power is uh, a little bit more dispersed. So then yes, the uncles, aunties and the, the children, nephews and nieces all are jostling. So um, then yes, they will come up with either trust deed or a family charter. Right, right. And in terms of the, sorry, we move on to the VCC, I suppose it's, it's probably very, very rare that you've ever seen a family try to put charter provisions around a VCC at this early stage, is that right? Um, we are working on a few family office uh, using the VCC. Um, one family already has a family charter in place. Um, so, but it doesn't affect the VCC. So whether we use the VCC or not, they already have the family charter. Right. We will then have to look at whether we have to take some of the key terms and restrictions, put it at PPM. So we are doing that. Yes. There, there's another family where, like the example I gave, uh, the patriarch is still young and healthy. He's the chairman, executive chairman. So when we broached the idea, the sons and uh, sons-in-law were quite uh, keen to do a family charter. The dad says no. Right, right. So I think generally just, just looking at family charters from a common law perspective, um, one of the issues that we, we've come across and something that Jennifer and I discussed in one of the previous webinars is these family charters being inadvertently brought in where there's a family dispute, shareholder dispute, and they, they, the court characterizes the company as a quasi-partnership. I doubt that's going to be the case with the VCC, but um, presumably it can be uh, applicable to an ordinary single family office. And there's the inadvertent sort of disclosure of this document in court proceedings to, to sort of discern what was actually agreed as the, the sort of quasi-partnership arrangement. So I think that's perhaps some of the legal implications. I think Jennifer from last when we discussed this, we were, we were looking at whether or not there is sufficient jurisprudence in Singapore at the moment on things like a, uh, a sort of quasi-partnership company. And we felt that at this point there wasn't sufficient jurisprudence at this point. Is that, is that right? Uh, yes, I still feel that way. Yeah. Yep. Right, now, corporate succession. Uh, very simple on this one. We're just looking at the, uh, the, the transmission of the shares across generation. And this is where a family has decided that they're not going to use a trust. So a member passes away uh, to uh, succeeding generation and really, if they're going to do it through a corporate route, what we're trying to highlight is here are some of the issues they need to consider in doing that. So if you have a share transmission on death and the bulk of your governance is held through a shareholder agreement and you have the unfortunate position of a successor shareholder refusing to adhere to the shareholder agreement, then effectively you're full into the director's discretion to refuse to register 
and then the potential for court proceedings. So Jennifer, from your perspective, um, how does this work out if we, if we have new members coming in and they're saying, I'm not prepared to adhere to a document I had no part in drafting, um, and the directors are saying, well, we're not going to register you unless you adhere to the framework that everybody else is doing. How does this end up looking when, when they, they fall out in this way, particularly when it comes to the director's discretion to refuse a registration? The director's discretion to refuse a registration of a transfer of shares will supersede any right on the part of the shareholder to be registered as a legal as well as a beneficial shareholder. So in that regard, the only thing that would supersede, that would win over the director's discretion, so to speak, would be an order of court. Um, that's, that's my view. Um, the, the order of court will basically win over everything else. Right. When we look at the VCC, obviously it's a private company constitution, it's not publicly filed, private members registered, so we can load up the governance framework within the constitutional documents, which will mean effectively some level of entrenchment because uh, new members don't have to do a deed of adherence to a shareholder agreement because effectively they'll, they'll if they inherit these shares, they'll inherit them subject to the constitutional arrangements. Is, is that a, an added advantage of the VCC? In, in respect of a, a private limited company? Um, Zach, you're right that one other benefit that um, the VCC has is that the constitution is not made available to the public. Uh, actually, neither is the, uh, the list of shareholders. Um, mm -hmm. You can pay a fee and find that on the aircraft. Now, um, whilst it's possible to entrench the restrictions or the requirements upon transfer or transmission uh, into the constitution, uh, we typically do not advise that, right? So we, we take the other approach. So there are two schools of thought, says whatever the shareholders agreement says, enshrine it in the uh, constitution. That may work for joint ventures, but for mm -hmm. funds, typically for funds, there's another school of thought that says don't keep it in the IMA, keep it in the PPM. Um, leave it as contractual, so the constitution is the basic constitution. So we believe in that. We take that approach and we advise clients. Uh, we have very, very few clients that want to make specific amendments in the constitution uh, to take care of these needs. The reason is because uh, they really are very clear and they enshrine it as typically captive funds. But if it's a normal fund, multifamily office and normal PEVC hedge funds, then you, you may have a problem. So from time to time, maybe every few months, every one year, there are changes and then you have to pass a resolution to men. So there's logistical problems. Uh, not insurmountable, but it's just an additional step. Now, the other way to control this is to actually put it in the shareholders agreement that says that anybody who takes over the shares, you must uh, comply with the deed of adherence and sign it. It means you actually sign on and agree to the terms of the shareholders agreement within 30 days. If not, there's a call option. We, the, the existing shareholders can call back at par or based on the formula. So that's the carrot and stick approach we'll take. Right, right. Okay, I think what we'll do is we'll, until we go, we won't progress to the uh, trust family office quite yet. What we'll do is ask Kylie to, to sort of help us with the tax effects of what we've been discussing in terms of the transmission across of a single family office. And um, so I'd invite Kylie to um, do her presentation and then run through the, the, the taxing considerations that we would have to keep in mind 
when going through this. Hello, everyone. Thank you for listening to a webinar on family governance and succession. So just a very light touch on some of the general tax considerations that you should know when entering into such structures. So the agenda for today is to give you a broad overview of the taxes to consider when it comes to moving assets into a structure, whether it's a corporate structure involving companies or VCCs, or it's a trust structure. The reason why I say this is a broad overview is because it is not possible to consider everything in the next 10 to 15 minutes in detail, okay? And especially when we are talking about different tax implications arising from the transfer of different assets located in different jurisdictions into different structures. So it probably will require, say, 10 to 15 days or even weeks and months just to investigate the tax consequences. And that's why it's so important. But what I can share in today's session is the various tax considerations that you need to think about when entering those structures. And I will also share the ongoing Singapore tax implications under a single family office or general family office structures in Singapore. Now, assuming that is the structure that you have chosen to enter into. So you have heard a lot about, you know, setting up structures for family governance and there are many options available, okay? Uh, many options for you to explore, such as corporate structures, a trust structures, having a will or a combination of them as part of your succession planning. Now, in setting up or moving into those structures, we have to consider the practical cost of doing so. And I can tell you, the largest cost would probably be your tax cost, okay? This is more so as members of the family could be tax residents in different jurisdictions. Some could be residing in the US or China or Indonesia. And all of them are, you know, high tax jurisdictions which practice a worldwide tax system. Now, some could be in countries like Malaysia, Singapore, okay, which practices a, a territorial tax system. And some could be even, who knows, in tax haven countries. So, and also, there are different types of assets from your liquid assets, such as your cash and your bankable assets to e-liquid assets, such as your factories, operating companies and properties. So to make things even more complicated, now these assets could be located all over the world. You could be having factories in China, you could be having properties in the UK, you could be having a Dubai bank account, Singapore real estate, you know. We will go through them in more detail in the next slide. So with all these complications in place, we really have to consider the different types of taxes the capital gains tax, the estate tax, inheritance tax, gift tax, just to name a few, few, your stamp duty, your indirect tax arising from the deemed disposals, etc. Okay, so let's first of all break it into three components. Number one, the type and the location of the assets. Number two, the type of the structure that you will enter into. And number three, the steps that you will take 
to migrate those assets into the structure. Now, all of this will have an impact on your final tax bill. So let's first look at the type of assets that would be transferred. Now, different type of assets attract different taxes. Okay, the transfer of immovable assets might attract stamp duty and capital gains tax, depending on the jurisdiction where it's located. Now, in some jurisdictions, it may even trigger inheritance tax implications. Of course, the easiest would be to transfer your cash and your cash equivalent, because other than the exchange gain, which may be taxable in some jurisdictions, uh, such as Indonesia, there should generally be no other tax applicable. Although in some jurisdictions, when you transfer cash into the trust, there could be gift tax. Okay, so for debt and equity securities, we have to be careful as well. For example, the transfer of UK and US shares into a trust may trigger inheritance or gift tax in the UK and the US. Now, some clients may also want to transfer the shares in operating companies into the structure, which can also trigger stamp duty and income tax in the country where the companies are located or incorporated. Okay. Some countries like China has indirect transfer rules, which means that if you transfer the shares of an offshore holding company, which holds the Chinese subsidiary as its main asset, then it is deemed that there is a transfer of the underlying Chinese subsidiary and the Chinese income tax will apply on this transfer, even though it is an indirect transfer. So the next factor that we have to consider is the type of structure. Will you have a trust? Okay. Will your trust be administered by a PTC, a private trust company, or is it by a professional trustee? Will you just hold the assets in your personal name? And if so, what are the inheritance tax implications? What would be the cost of transferring the assets upon your demise? Well, in Singapore, for example, the transfer of Singapore properties and company shares to beneficiaries on death is exempt from stamp duty. There is also no estate duty or any form of wealth tax in Singapore. But of course, the same cannot be said for other countries such as UK, US, Japan, for example. And lastly, we have to consider the method and the steps of transfer, whether it's a contribution from the top, okay, or is it a buy and sell arrangement, or is it a share swap arrangement, or perhaps through the issuance of rights and new shares to dilute the existing shareholders' rights, okay? You may be surprised that the method of transfer also has an impact on tax liability. For example, in Singapore, the transfer of shares are subject to stamp duty, but the issuance of new shares are not. So something that you have to consider. So now let's take a closer look at each group of each class of assets. Okay, so you have the family member, and assuming if this family member was to set up a fund, okay, regardless of whether the fund is going to be held by a trust or not. Now, if I were to transfer properties into this particular fund, then I have to consider the stamp duty, depending on where the properties are located. 
I have to consider the capital gains tax as well, okay? Whether that would be triggered. And that also depends on my tax residency status. Whether, for example, I'm a UK domicile, I'm a Singapore tax resident, that will trigger tax. And if I were to transfer cash and cash equivalent, okay, generally there should not be any tax implications, okay, other than just the exchange gain. But then, of course, there are some countries whereby when you transfer a large amount of cash, cash equivalent, uh, you could trigger gift tax. And assuming if it's securities, then of course, again, we have to look at whether there would be stamp duty or income tax uh, arising from the countries where the security, the, country, the companies are based. And if I were to transfer operating companies, okay, then of course, the gain from the transfer of the shares in these operating companies could be subject to income tax, could be subject to capital gains tax, okay? Uh, or any form of exit tax in the foreign jurisdiction, depending on where these companies are located. And of course, even if I transfer the holding company, okay, of something that I want, even if I transfer a BVI holding company of a Chinese subsidiary, just now we have discussed, now that would also trigger indirect transfer tax in China or in other foreign jurisdictions. And of course, stamp duty can apply as well. You know, sometimes stamp duty can look through and say that essentially you are not just transferring the BVI, but you are transferring the underlying company and that could trigger stamp duty. So we all have to be very careful because your tax bill can be quite costly. Okay, so now assuming if you were to set up a single family office in Singapore, right? Let's look at the tax implications associated with family office structures. In terms of tax, let's look at the fund first, the fund company. The return on the investments such as dividend, coupon, interest, gain from sale of securities and bonds are generally exempt from Singapore tax. Okay, that is assuming if your fund company actually goes for your 13R or your 13X tax incentive. Now, all of that generally tax exempt. Of course, uh, there could still be foreign withholding tax, okay, on certain type of passive sourced income, such as dividend and interest. For example, dividends received from a US company would be subject to US withholding tax on dividends. And interest received from, say, an Australian company would be subject to Australian withholding tax on interest. But other than those foreign taxes, of course, which continue to apply, and you can reduce those foreign taxes by using Singapore company as the fund entity so that you can take advantage of the tax treaty benefits. Other than those taxes, I would say that generally there should be no other taxes, assuming if your income falls within the qualifying list, okay? And also, um, if the fund entity, okay, um, just now we mentioned that it is able to enjoy tax treaty benefits, but when the fund entity and the family office profits, they are distributed to the holding company, okay, as dividends. Now the dividends should be tax exempt as well. And when the holding company further distributes the income as dividends to the trust, and when the trustees distributes that to the beneficiaries, there should be no further taxes, okay? So as you can see, 
other than the foreign tax which may continue to apply on certain types of income, passive income especially, there is very little tax leakage in the structure. Well, of course, the exception is the fund management company. Okay, now the fund management company continues to pay tax because the fund management company receives the management income, management fee income, it pays the salary, it pays off the expenses, it will still have a small margin sitting in the fund management company, not that much, okay, and it will continue to pay the tax at 17%. And of course, the remuneration that is received by those investment professionals, uh, they would have to pay personal income tax on those remuneration as well. Okay, so having said all of that, okay, the broad overview, let's say what are the key takeaways from all this? Now, we all know that family office structures can be very efficient if you structure it properly, okay? So the key takeaway is that there is really no best structure that suits all families. And the best structure for your family has to be carefully considered, taking into account the family's circumstances, as well as the different types of taxes in different jurisdictions. And of course, it is important to get the structure correct at the outset because any subsequent change may be very costly and therefore proper planning is really important so when you are in doubt please consult any of us here okay and finally because the structure is run and maintained by family members we need to align the goals and the values of the family members and the stakeholders so therefore proper family governance is required to achieve harmony. Thank you everyone for listening. Okay, that's all I have for today. Thanks very much, Kylie. Um, I think if you can stop sharing. Sure. Okay, very good. I think just from looking at the, the bit that we just dropped off on, uh, a few comments on the trust structuring of a family office in the context of where a family is looking at it from governance and succession purposes. Um, I think Kylie, you're going to need to jump off in, in a number of minutes. So I'm going to hopefully I'll, I'll get through mine and you'll still be there. But just from re reiterating from a trust context, if the family are looking at a standard PTC structure, it tends to look like this on the family office and it tends to have a purpose trust above. Now, if that's the case, then there's two trusts there's the purpose trust structure and then there's the family trust structure. And the people involved in this structure are going to be the beneficiaries, the enforcer, directors of the PTC, and directors of the family office itself. The, the governance framework that needs to be looked at in the context of a trust is the same. It's the same as if you were operating through a corporate entity. So control and participation would be the same issue. And I'll briefly just run through some of the key things from a wealth planner's perspective that you need to keep in mind when you're operating a private trust company structure with a family family office at, at below. The key thing is to create a, a chain of accountability and, and effective uh, management. So here you're looking at the enforcer committee on the purpose trust being representative of the family. And if you've got, let's say, three branches of the family all held in one trust, then you're going to need to consider a, a beneficiary branch representation. 
at the enforcer committee level. It's important within these structures that the beneficiaries have the ultimate locus of control and not have it strewn off into the purpose deed or the family uh, uh, or the private trust company or at the family office level. It must be that the ultimate power is vested at the beneficiary level because that will be part of the problems that you'll encounter if the, uh, you have a disjointed uh, approach to this. So from the enforcer, it's very simple. Enforcer committee has power to appoint the PTC directors. But here we also have the opportunity within the purpose deed to create criteria around who can actually sit on the private trust company, what's their qualifications, how long do they stay on, and when should the purpose trust remove them. So these are again important governance provisions that should be included as a matter of course when you're operating a PTC structure. And then of course the PTC uh, directors obviously have power to appoint the family office directors and again, we can embed into the family trustee, the office of director rules for who can sit on the family office. It's a bit different from the corporate context where you're looking at things like a shareholder agreement. Here, we're having to run it in the context of a trust. And so you have to be careful where you're vesting the powers and who has the reserve power to effectively manage this sort of um, framework. The basic rule is this, establish a chain of accountability and control avoid circular or concentrated power, establish effective chain of supervision between each of the different level, enforcer to director, PTC, and then down. And of course, plan ahead. Don't just do it for the current generation. Look at generations ahead. If you're structuring a private trust company only on the basis that you're trying to meet the current patriarch's intentions, then you're completely missing the point of it being multi-generational. You need to think ahead. Think of how many other members will come in and what could they be concerned about in terms of their influence on the structure. From a benefit perspective, very simple. This is gonna be something for the PTC directors to determine the investment policy, the distribution retention policy, discretionary distributions, but consider including some form of beneficiary involvement in this. Look at potentially a protector committee being put onto the family trust to interact on some of these issues and not just have it as a a power that's held on its own by the directors of the PTC. And then finally, looking at prevention of abuse, information sharing. Enhanced information sharing and reporting from investment performance to related party transactions, conflicts of interest, director salary. Make sure that information is passing up the chain from the family office straight through the PTC and into the beneficiary class. Uh, make sure that you don't create an opaque structure that can fester problems at the family level. You must try and open it up, make it more transparent. From a multi-branch perspective, the only thing I'd say is this, when we look at family offices and when we look at multiple generations being put into one single trust, the issue that you can encounter is that the branches of the family may start to diverge in terms of their, what we call carry capacity. So their lifestyle, what they want to have in terms of their distributions, how much money they spend, and they may be that when you have them all housed in one single trust, it's a recipe for a disaster. So from a wealth planner's perspective, look very carefully at what's going on in each branch that are being introduced into a singular trust. If, if, if it looks as though this family is not going to work well within one single trust, look at perhaps doing a multi-fund trust. At least you can then have some level of uh, sort of deregulation or, or decentralization rather from that. If it looks like the family really are separating, then consider having different branch trusts. They can all sort of unify on their family office, but at least each of the trusts are being 
separated and looked from a liability perspective from all of the myriad things that can happen to a beneficiary from divorce, etc. Now, in terms of a VCC fund, you can run that. Uh, it's, it's available so that the family can look at uh, having a structure in place where they have multiple branches in different trusts with different classes of shares. And obviously, they can take advantage of the SEVIER approach. As you'll see, in this context, the family is starting to segregate out. One of the key processes for family offices is to bring them together. But it may well be that they mature in that way and that each branch wants to have their own sort of uh, policy in terms of their investment and investment returns. And the best way to do that is to try and think carefully about the initial structuring. At its most extreme, the family will be completely separated with different tranches of trusts, different trustees. And obviously looking at a, a VCC fund could be a, a, a sort of uh, an adequate structure for them to separate. But at the same time, take into consideration some of the cost savings that they can reap by using a VCC fund. So I only mention this, this is the, the sort of last comment on this. I only mention it because um, we must consider that families that are housed together in one singular trust may not get along over time, and that it's incumbent on us to look at a more broader range of options when structuring them, and not just typically put them into one singular discretionary trust with a private trust company above. Uh, and obviously, if you do it that way, then look at the government's suggestions that I made earlier. Okay, in terms of questions and answers, um, I think we have about seven questions, and I think a lot of them are on VCC. So I think, Wunham, if I can invite you to have a look at some of these, I think they're, they're going to be um, uh, more on point for you. Unfortunately, Spencer had to leave. Um, he's got other engagements. So, so Spencer's not available to answer any of these questions. But um, yeah, Wilhelm, do you, do you have any views on some of the questions that have been raised? Um, sure. Let me take a quick look. So I think the first question is uh, very quickly, um, the compulsory, compulsory director. Um, what it meant is that the VCC says you must have at least one director who is a director or representative of the fund management company. Right, so this is one requirement. Another requirement is that the VCC fund must have at least one director who is ordinarily resident in Singapore. So this director could be the same uh, person being the director or representative of the fund management company. Um, next question is, how are counterparties reacting to contracting VCCs? Um, it's very new, so uh, yes, that's true. Some of the banks and private banks are scratching their heads because they probably are not as familiar. But those who have been dealing with the uh, segregated cell structures like in Luxembourg or the BVIPCC or the Cayman SPC should find that it's not entirely different. So it's just a, uh, you know, just probably teething period right now. Um, there's a question. Is it mandatory for a family to set up a VCC? No, of course not. You can have a family office just using a family holding company, uh, a trust like what Kylie said. You can make it very complicated with uh, SPVs and whole codes and funds, but you can choose to have a family fund. And the family fund can be a unit trust, a corporate fund, an LP fund, or a VCC fund. Uh, it's just that a lot of the families you are advising right now like the VCC. Um, the other question is consolidation of statements. Uh, maybe Kylie can comment on this one. Uh, whether 
the consolidation of statement and who gets to see what. You want to take that question, Kylie? Um, consolidation of a statement is more, you can hear me, right? It's, it's more an accounting question on whether the statement needs to be consolidated. Um, generally speaking, I believe that uh, if you have control, if the parent company has control uh, on the subsidiary, uh, then of course uh, the accounts needs to be consolidated. But whether in, in it, you, you need to show or not, um, what do you think, Wunham? Is it uh, compulsory from a legal angle? The, the current legislation now is drafted is that actually it's visible to a certain extent. Um, all I can say is that there's feedback to the MAS and we're working with them to see how to fix this. Yeah. Mm. It's, it's not entirely clear. Uh, I think the last BCC question, Zach, is um, the question is for the panelists. Uh, can mm -hmm. a major founder or management of a listed company put their shares into the BCC structure as part of the consideration? I think the answer is yes. If, mm -hmm. for example, I own shares in a listed company or a private company, instead of putting cash into a BCC fund, can I put my shares into a BCC fund? The answer is yes. Uh, you've got to take note of the pricing. Uh, valuation, the auditors, the uh, fund managers must, and the fund administrator make sure it's properly valued, fair market value. You should also consider transfer costs, like what Kylie had mentioned. If it's a private company in Singapore, it's 0.2% for stamp duties. Mm -hmm. uh, for listed company, there may be brokerage involved. And if you are a founder of a listed company, when you transfer, I think there may be disclosures that are required. And then your direct, indirect holding, reporting, and all that. You've got to take care of that because there's a SGX listing requirement as well. But in short, you can do it, but there are steps and there's costs involved. Mm -hmm. Okay, I think that's um, pretty much it on the questions. So I think it's all, all that's left for me is just to, to thank everyone for all their efforts on this. Um, thank you, Jennifer. Thank you, Abraham. And of course, thank you, Kylie, for our um, very insightful um, uh, tax analysis that you gave there. And also thanks to everybody that was involved in all of these series over the last month and a bit.